Hello, and welcome to In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a global movement of Evangelical Presbyterian Churches. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, Stated Clerk of the EPC. Our prayer is that God uses Dean and his guests to both inform and inspire you about how God is working in and through the EPC. The motto of our family of churches is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you, Rachel, as always, and thank you for tuning in for another edition of In All Things, whether you're on the Peloton, out walking the dog, uh, or on your way to work, wherever it might be that you have tuned in to us, we so very much appreciate it. And as always, we love it when you're able to um, like us on your social and share it with others and get that word out there because God is doing some great things inside of the EPC and we want to share that with others in the EPC, but beyond that as well. There are things that we discuss on this podcast that are of benefit to the church and that can extend well beyond the boundaries of any one particular denomination, as I think you'll find to be the case with our conversation today. Uh, But before we dig into that, our sponsor for today is just a reminder of the three new presbyteries that we have. We now have 16 in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. When I first came into the EPC back in 2008, we had eight presbyteries, so we've doubled in our size, and more presbyteries uh, means smaller presbyteries, which means greater relational affinity and connection, and hopefully greater missional effectiveness. Uh, That is the design and the hope behind continuing to grow by adding these presbyteries. And the three new presbyteries that we have are actually from a multiplication of what was our largest presbytery, the Presbytery of Mid-Atlantic, into three presbyteries, the Presbyteries of the Central Carolinas, the Presbytery of Coastal Mid-Atlantic, and the Presbytery of New River. Today's episode of In All Things is brought to you by the Presbytery of the Central Carolinas. If you didn't know, the Presbytery of Central Carolinas occupies almost the entire western part of South Carolina and the central part of North Carolina. And so they have a a particular geographic and cultural affinity um, that gives them a great missional unity, which is a super thing. If you did not know, um, the teaching elder Robert Howard is the new stated clerk of that presbytery. Ruling elder Don Kirkley is the moderator. Jim Braswell is the moderator-elect, and they have their own missional director. One of the things I love about our three new presbyteries is each has a paid missional director to help be intentional about things like church development and church planting and evangelism and missions. Um, But this is a very robust um, presbytery, even as they just get started. They already have a a missions committee, a stewardship committee. They have their own presbytery chaplain, church development committee, as well as their missional director. So it's a really vibrant startup as far as our presbyteries go. So please be in prayer for them. Go onto our website at epc.org, and you can check out more information there about all of our presbyteries, including the new presbytery of the Central Carolinas. Today, uh, we are going to be entering into a conversation with an old friend who has been in the Presbytery of the Great Plains. Kent Matthews is uh, someone who has served as a pastor for many years 
uh, but he is finding in this season of his life a call to be really an educator. And he has taught at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and more recently has started an innovative approach called Heartland School for Ministry, which is part of a new way of resourcing people to become equipped uh, for ministry and particular pastoral roles. And um, Kent also serves on our National Ministerial Vocations Committee, which is helping to think about issues of candidate pipeline, training, resourcing, and equipping people for ministry. And what I love about that team is they're, by necessity, starting to think outside the box. How is it that we can hold to effectiveness and and gospel standards and yet perhaps reevaluate the ways in which we've gone about preparation for ministry in a new time? and a new era, and a new paradigm that would better equip people for gospel ministry. And so Kent has warned me, he might say some what he thinks are provocative things today. They're going to challenge some of your assumptions about theological preparation and education, but that's exactly why we have him on In All Things. So Kent, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate it. So give us a little bit of your background. How did you end up in this season of your life uh, with this kind of vocational role as an educator? Tell us a little bit about your, your faith and vocational journey. Well, I came to faith in Jesus Christ through a Billy Graham crusade in Kansas City in 1967, sitting in the upper deck, row double Z. There was like one row behind us, I think, in the upper so deck. We used to call those the nosebleed seats. There you go. We were there uh, in the old uh, Kansas City baseball stadium before they moved to the new complex. And uh, Billy Graham said, come on down. And I started to go down, and my dad said, where are you going? I said, he said, come on down. And my dad says, we got to leave early to beat the crowd. So I just <laughs> left and went down, so they had to wait for me. I, I didn't really get a hold of Christian discipleship till I was about 16. I'm a Young Life uh, beneficiary uh, and myself have served in Young Life leadership. But I was 22 years in business before I actually went into full-time professional okay, ministry. I didn't I have, know that. I've been in uh, lay ministry in a lot of significant ways for a long time, but one of the things I wanted to do was get into business before I went into seminary so that I knew what the average person in the pew did. I think one of the great shortcomings for people who have only done professional ministry is they know what it's like to be spiritual on the side. You know, pastors get paid to be spiritual, and they have to figure out how to slip it into their life uh, elsewhere. So I was very grateful for my years in business. I enjoyed it so much and had such a great time in lay ministry that I delayed and delayed and delayed until God finally broke me down and said, let's do it now. So 22 years in as a business professional and then now 20-plus years in ministry. And as you mentioned, so I'm no longer a parish pastor, though I thrived and loved that. I was originally a PCUSA pastor and then uh, was part of the mass exodus in 2006, 7, and 8 with my congregation that then became EPC. And during the latter part of my pastoral ministry, I helped the ICME, the Interim Committee on Ministerial Education, here in the EPC redefine ordination qualifications and standards, and then as part of that, developed the program that's called the Mentored Apprenticeship Program through Gordon-Conwell, because Gordon-Conwell Charlotte proved to be the most entrepreneurial of the many schools that I talked to, and that allowed us to develop 
eight of the what I'm calling practical ministry classes that then went into our requirements for ordination, which were not specified before that. Those are still available, but they're being managed by the EPC on the EPC website and no longer registration through Gordon-Conwell, but they're still accredited through Gordon-Conwell. I do a variety of other ministries, like I'm director of a 200-bed orphanage in Uganda and a growing church planting network there. I have seven pastor training schools in South Central Asia that I'm responsible for maintaining, and a whole variety of other things that I do. So God's been very kind to me to use me despite my inadequacies, and I feel more and more every year like ministry is increasingly exciting. Oh, that's awesome. There's a number of things I'd love to drill down on. So we'll have to come back to another episode someday in the future mm-hmm. because um, uh, one of your fellow Ministerial Vocation Committee members, Doug Ressler, is very involved in Ethiopia and Somalia. You're involved in Uganda. I'm involved in Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. It would be fun to have a roundtable mm-hmm. of people whom God has called to deeply invest in the continent of Africa someday. Yeah. That would be a, a fascinating uh, roundtable conversation yeah. to have. I'm also fascinated by our proclivity towards uh, acronyms. Uh, ICME and the EPC and the MBC and, you know, all these in insider ways of describing things that are designed to, I think, confuse me as I try to understand uh, all those different things. That's that's a learning curve for, for anybody from the outside. Yeah. But, but more importantly, one of the things that really captured me and you telling that brief synopsis of your story, Kent, is how God purposefully uses these different seasons and components and of our lives that he pours into us for his greater purposes. So here you are a person who is a business person and a, and a pastor who now is at the season of your life, really entering into these entrepreneurial ways of approaching the business yeah. of how we train pastors. Like God is actually using all the things of your life so that you're probably, and maybe I'm being correct me if you think I'm wrong here, my take on you is that God has poured all these things into you and you are at maybe the most productive point in your ministry life because those things are all coming together with one kind of focus, which is how do we equip people for the church? Yeah. I don't mean this to sound unhumble, if that's a word, but I don't think I would be as effective of a pastor if I had not been in business for a while. You know, pastors are paid to be spiritual, and lay people have to figure out how to do it otherwise. And I don't think you can be an effective preacher totally if you don't understand the life and the struggles of the person in the pew. So um, you can do the best you can, but if you've lived that life, then you have a better understanding in terms of what they're dealing with. And the idea that we want you to come to church on Sunday and do all these other things in order to live the normal Christian life and be part of the health and well-being of the church while raising a family and working more than 50 hours or more than 40 hours on a job, et cetera. So I think that was instrumental. Also, part of my understanding of effectively doing ministry is organizational leadership. That's not really taught for most pastors. Right. They Some right. of them might come by it naturally. Most of it stumble into it if they're any good at it. And many of them never be any are never any good at it. And I think I acquired that through my business experience. But you're right in terms of, and one other thing is I, I have way too many degrees um, so I'm overeducated. So there's another component of it is my educational background, which all of those things combine for me to kind of, I don't know that it's a unique perspective, but have my own perspective on 
educational training and ministerial training and what's necessary and what isn't necessary. And we are absolutely in a continental shift in terms of mm. ministerial education. We know that the government is going to forgive $10,000 in uh, student loans, perhaps, for some people, but nobody's going to be forgiving student loans for seminary students in graduate school. And the cost of education is becoming increasingly crazy expensive. Uh, and seminaries are trying to deal with that, but they're never going to be able to effectively deal with it. Well, on top of that, you've got people graduating sometimes with not only college debt, but now seminary debt. And oftentimes first calls for actually the vast majority of pastors are smaller churches yeah. where they're not getting paid uh, enough to be able to not only take care of a young growing family, but to service that kind of debt. Yeah. Well, so you know this better than I do, or uh, I'm sorry, at least as well as I do, that Presbyterians Back to did, that unhumble thing again? There you go. Yeah, okay. Presbyterians did not conquer the frontier or the West because they were stuck with their uh, educational standards along the Atlantic coast. And the United Methodists and the Baptists and others conquered the rest of the U.S. because it was like, if you love Jesus and the Spirit's anointed, you go out there and uh, lead people to Christ. I'm a high believer in education, but I don't think education is the only thing, clearly, that qualifies somebody for ministry. And you have to have a standard. So we have a standard. One of the things that we've been able to do in recent years is come up with an MDiv equivalent, which is a brilliant solution. We also have a commission pastor solution, but there's still the barrier of like, so let's say you're an ethnic pastor in an urban core church. Well, if you don't even have a bachelor's degree, then how are we going to grow as a increasingly diverse congregation if the educational experience and expectations of blacks or other ethnicities is not the same as whites? So I'm concerned that we're not thinking enough outside the box to prepare people to become pastors without saying that the primary qualification is education. That's really why we wanted to invite you right. in because I know you're thinking deeply about these things. And so I'll just uh, tee this off with a brief antidote. My first, the first church that I served was a little church in the country. And um, when I arrived fresh out of seminary and, and still kind of my nose running and snotty nosed young kid, uh, one of the elders without any apology said, uh, kid, we're going to unlearn you everything you learned in seminary and teach you how to be a pastor. And they were sort of proud of that. Right. They had a track record of doing that. And that really wasn't that far from the truth. I mean, yeah. I realized very quickly that a lot of the things that I had in seminary, the, the church history classes, which interestingly enough, I had a whole bunch of church history classes in college. So going back and doing that all over again was kind of like, what am I doing this for? Right. But a lot of the things I learned, some of them really were useful and helpful and the exegetical tools and getting into the text and so forth. But, but a lot of this stuff, how to run a session meeting, how to um, deal with um, a retired an elder who was a business person who was retired and felt that now the church was their business they were going to run because right. they didn't have anything else to run and wanted to run all over me because I was young and inexperienced. Right. How to read an Excel spreadsheet, put together a budget, uh, plan a curriculum. I mean, there were so many things, let alone hospital visits and dealing with the death of a, a child or, or things that I just was completely unprepared for. But that, that, you know, everything you ever learned, you learned in kindergarten. Everything I ever learned about pastoral ministry, that little church, kind of taught me. And I, I almost find that to be, have been as helpful or more helpful than any of the theological training I had going into that. So yeah. if that experience, you're nodding your head, and I've said this to others who nod their heads, if that's a common take 
what do we do? Like what, what is the, in the new reality where we are today, kind of this post-Christian America, this post-modern, maybe even post-COVID space where everything has, has changed and yet some of us want to act as if nothing has changed. What do we do by way of preparing our pastors for ministry? What are some of the, uh, let's start with some of the challenges that we face. Um, and you've already kind of spoken to a couple. Uh, let's talk about the opportunities we have. And then any creative solutions or suggestions that you would put out there for us to kind of noodle around. Okay, I'm not going to follow that logically the way you've laid it out. We'll see where this goes, and we may not have time to cover all of this. You told me you were a contrarian by nature, so I appreciate that. No, I have a disorganized brain. That's the problem. I think the number one problem is the presumption that if you have a Master's of Divinity, you are therefore qualified for ministry, or that you're not qualified for ministry if you don't have a Master's of Divinity. It's a model that's 700 years old, and it's pretty clear that its uh, time is not past, but there's a need for an alternative. Part of the need is because people cannot afford to get a $50,000 degree, take out loans for it, and then pay for it forever afterwards. Second is that we're asking, there's an increasing number of people who are second career people that are going into ministry, which is a good thing. People that have matured, grown up, um, are a little bit older, and have some experience outside of books and seminary classrooms that benefit the church. But if we say to them, you know, you've got to go on the 10-year plan to get your Master's of Divinity because you've got to kind of fit it into the warp and woof of your other responsibilities in life, that's a challenge. We're already an aging out denomination like most of the major mainline denominations since that. The baby boomers are the largest generation, and they're aging out. And we also know that not enough people are wanting to go into ministry, going through educate, through seminary education to fill in the gaps. There was a research study done recently, I apologize, I can't remember who it was, of the eight largest denominations in the United States, the PCUSA, the United Methodist, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, the Southern Baptist, the Assembly of God, etc. And seven of them are in rapid decline. Even the Southern Baptist denomination is in decline. Mm -hmm. The only one that is growing and is growing significantly is the Assembly of God. And the Assembly of God is the only one that does not require you to have a graduate degree or does not strongly suggest, like Southern Baptists do, that you have a graduate degree. The idea is that you have a sense of calling, you have a, an anointing, um, and we will get you the education necessary once God has called you and you begin the ministry. Now, this is dangerous on one level because education is a good thing, and in no way whatsoever am I saying that a master's of divinity is bad or that formal education is bad. It's that it has to be, A, supplemented by other things. So academic discipline is important. Character development is important. Personal spiritual growth is important. Practical experience is important. And to be honest, being mentored, coached, or supervised by somebody is important. So could I dig down on two of those? Sure. Talk to us about how character development, maybe a, current, a lot of current seminary curriculums or, or educations may or may not be addressing that and how that is playing out in the church. So the character development and I think the spiritual formation was the other one that you mentioned that caught my attention. Could you speak to those? Well, every seminary has a goal of producing whole people for ministry, but they focus on academic discipline. That's the model. Now, increasingly, they have said, well, you need 
practical experience. But here's a secondary thing. Because the cost of education, because of the decreasing number of students, ATS, the primary accrediting board for most of the larger seminaries in the country, have decided to reduce the minimum number of required hours all the way down to 72 hours. And the idea was if we reduce the number of hours, we reduce the number of dollars, we reduce the number of dollars, then we will get more students and that more students will go into ministry. Well, that has not proven to be the case. It's been absolutely incorrect. So you have less hours available. So one of the things they've cut is original languages and field education. Hmm. So there's less field education hours required. But field education, as you know, used to be go work basically free for some church um, and do youth ministry and somebody is supposed to be your supervisor and they pay no attention to you. Really supervised ministry or any kind of mentored supervision in seminary is an idea it's very difficult to pull off. So in order to do it, there has to really be a partnership between a local church and a seminary Mm -hmm. and an agreement where we will set some standards, we will ask for some agreement with the mentors to what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, and we check up on it. Well, seminaries aren't designed to do that, so it's very difficult. The second thing about that is that if you're working in a secular job, and you're going to seminary, which half of current seminary students are doing, it's hard to pull off all of that anyway. Mm. So really the solution is to redefine seminary education so that your class is defined by four things. One of them is you read the books, do the papers, uh, fulfill the assignments. The second is that you have a mentor that we vet, that we assign, that we have some quality control over, and that person spends time with you investing in your life, talking about what it's like to be married in ministry, to prepare sermons in ministry, to buy books in ministry, to deal with conflict in ministry. And that person also is involved in your character development, talks about their own personal character development, what was involved in that, and, uh, and how I can help supervise or inspire you for personal character development. I could get into that further. So seminaries are trying to do that increasingly, but it's difficult when you've got a campus and a full-time faculty, and that's what's killing seminaries. You know, Yale Divinity School has over a billion-dollar endowment fund. The rest of them can't even make it charge enough money to, to stay afloat financially. So Fuller's in trouble, and Gordon Conwell recently had to close down a campus. So the struggle is how do we be who we are and maintain what we've been and make the transition to what we need to be in order to provide the product we need for students. And it requires innovation that's just now being thought of. Okay, so you've gone there. In the time that we have left, I want to talk about the Heartland School for Ministry because okay. you have taken those four principles that you just mentioned and you haven't just talked the talk, you're walking the walk as an educator and an innovator and a a person who's a pastor and a businessman who puts those things together, you have actually come up with an approach through Heartland School of Ministry to do exactly what you're talking about. So tell us a little bit about Heartland School for Ministry and and how people could get information about that. Thank you for asking me about that. And I don't want this anyway to sound like I'm trying to promote my school because I would love for every school to do this. I would love for everybody to have access to it. And I just happen to be on the front line of innovation. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's doing it. I just don't know of a lot of groups that are doing it. And they tend to be driven by local churches, not by denominations. Our program was developed in conjunction with our denominations requirements. Things like North Point and Atlanta, they're driven by we're a local church that has our own school, so they don't meet the same need, but they're trying to accomplish the same purpose. 
maybe the simplest way to say this is, so let's say you take a church history course from Heartland School. It's academically rigorous. You read with the same type of textbooks that you would in any other higher profile seminary. You do significant assignments. But during the process of it, we require you to make it practical. So one of your assignments would be identify, let's say, the 25 most important people, events, or developments in church history. Tell us why they're important. Tell us why they would matter to you personally, and tell us why they're significant for doing ministry today. Mm. We do this with every single course. It isn't just you memorize the facts or learn the information, but tell us exactly why it matters to you, and tell us how it impacts ministry or you would do ministry based on it, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, theology, church history. But as you're doing that, you have packaged in the mentor piece too. Yeah. So then the, the third thing is that you have to identify a mentor who I vet, who then gets a contract package from us, who then agrees to meet with you weekly and to pour their life into you, sort of like take you under their wing as shepherding the next generation of church leaders. And part of this is that I will then teach you the things I wish somebody had taught me, but nobody did teach me. And so we address that component that you mentioned earlier, what we don't learn in seminary. How do we acquire that information? And you have managed to leverage all kind of resources, uh, videos, online things, things you've taught yourself, yeah. things that you've taken from video, from theological libraries and other places and package this all together. And because you're not brick and mortar yeah. and you're this kind of adaptive, more nimble online, yeah. but yet personal mentoring thing. So it's not just kind of disconnected technologically. There's yeah. a real live human component to this. Yeah. Um, you've been able to cut down the cost pretty dramatically, which you have said earlier is one of the drivers be- behind particularly people coming out of under-resourced communities finding access to this kind of equipping. So could you talk a little bit about the, the finances at, at, at Heartland and how that is designed to serve people who want to serve the church? Probably the best are the Southern Baptists, who if you're involved in a Southern Baptist church or you're on staff of a Southern Baptist church, you can take classes for $1,500. But most seminary classes now in graduate schools are between $1,500 to $2,200 per three-credit unit class. Mm. At Heartland, they're $500. Mm. So they're about one-third to one-fourth the cost. They're actually uh, more robust in terms of what it provides the student. And I'm not in any way trying to criticize any other school. We don't have big-name scholars like some schools, which would be nice. But you get the same books that they're reading, you can hear the same lectures that they hear, but you get a, a supervised mentor in the process and you're paying a fraction of the cost. Mm-hmm. It's easier for a church, by the way, if you say, my education is going to cost $50,000, that's daunting to a church. If you say my education to do the entire thing and get the degree is going to be $12,000, then what we've discovered is churches are wanting to partnership in that more and help out more financially than they would otherwise because they that feel person can stay it. in that ministry context. Yes. They're, so they're actually learning this in the context of the church. Yes. I wish I could explain to you, I wish we had time for me to tell you how this could play out in the rural community or how this could play out in the declining or aging or, uh, church community, because all of this has a place that would help as well. In addition to the commissioned pastor concept that yeah. we have as a denomination, 
we're starting to do some of this in my own presbytery, where I'm also ministerial committee chair in the Great Plains Presbytery, where smaller outlying churches, which will always exist, because there'll always be people farming and ranching, that nobody who's got an MDiv wants to go out there, which is wrong and a shame. But there's other solutions for that, and part of that is through this kind of innovative education as well. What we'd like to do, Kent, is maybe continue this conversation and go to those places because recent meeting with the moderators of all of our presbyteries, the common thread that they all shared as a concern they have for the future was the smaller and rural churches in particular. And this is a key note issue. So what I'd like to do is wrap up this conversation today, but if we could just, we're going to pick up that conversation and carry it forward in a part two, if, if you're game. Okay. All right. So thank you everyone for tuning in uh, today for this episode of In All Things. And we're grateful uh, to have you here joining us for this conversation. And I hope that you'll see this as an important part one. If, if Kent has stimulated your thinking and let's say you're part of a, a church that is, has someone who is looking at going into ministry, but uh, you know can't get the the space, the money, the, the way to make that work with their life, and they're looking for uh, adaptive entrepreneurial approaches to this that are grounding them and equipping them, um, share this. Share this with others. Pass it on uh, to your pastor, uh, to that youth leader in your church who's praying about this. Um, just share it on social with others, and we'll get the word out as we always do. Hey, friends, as we join uh, in closing, let me remind you of the good word that comes from God's word in our doing so. Uh, The Son is the image of the invisible God, Paul writes in Colossians 1, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, for he is the head of the body, the church. Until the next time when we gather, my friends, in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.